The scripture reading is from Isaiah chapter 40, verses 12 through the end of the chapter. Please stand for the reading of God's Word. Who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand and marked off the heavens with a span, and closed the dust of the earth in a measure, and weighed the mountains in scales and the hills in a balance? Who has measured the Spirit of the Lord, or what man shows him his counsel? Whom did he consult, and who made him understand? Who taught him the path of justice, and taught him knowledge, and showed him the way of understanding? Behold, the nations are like a drop from a bucket, and are accounted as the dust on the scales. Behold, he takes up the coastlands like fine dust. Lebanon would not suffice for fuel, nor are its beasts enough for a burnt offering. All the nations are as nothing before him. They are accounted by him as less than nothing, an emptiness. To whom then will you liken God, or what likeness compare with him? An idol, a craftsman casts it. And a goldsmith overlays it with gold and casts for it silver chains. He who is too impoverished for an offering chooses wood that will not rot. He seeks out a skillful craftsman to set up an idol that will not move. Do you not know? Do you not hear? Has it not been told you from the beginning? Have you not understood from the foundations of the earth? It is he who sits above the circle of the earth and its inhabitants are like grasshoppers who stretches out the heavens like a curtain and spreads them like a tent to dwell in, who brings princes to nothing and makes the rulers of the earth as emptiness. Scarcely are they planted, scarcely sown. Scarcely has their stem taken root in the earth when he blows on them and they wither and the tempest carries them off like stubble. To whom then will you compare me that I should be like him, says the Holy One. Lift up your eyes on high and see who created these. He who brings out their host by number, calling them all by name, by the greatness of his might, and because he is strong in power, not one is missing. Why do you say, O Jacob, and speak, O Israel, my way is hidden from the Lord, and my right is disregarded by my God? Have you not known? Have you not heard? The Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. He does not faint or grow weary. His understanding is unsearchable. He gives power to the faint. And to him who has no might, he increases strength. Even youths shall faint and be weary, and young men shall fall exhausted. But they who wait for the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Well, we're uh, partway into a series in which we are um, looking at gospel truths for anxious times. And, um, you know, the, the overarching passage, one of the greatest and most frequent commands in the Bible is fear not. And rather than take, a, you know, five of those passages that you can find throughout the scriptures um, and, and wrestling with each of those, we're instead just looking at one part of the story of God's people as they struggled to, in the midst of their anxious times, trust in the goodness and the grace and the promises of God. And we we looked at that last week. In particular, we said, you know, when we read Isaiah, um, Isaiah was written to people who, who were actually 
in the midst of a circumstance that Isaiah was foretelling, was saying would come. Right? So Isaiah wrote about 700 years before the birth of Christ and about 150 years before the people who, to whom this was written would end up in exile. So here's God speaking through Isaiah around 700 BC. Isaiah, I want you to say to these people that I'm going to send them into exile because they have disobeyed me, they've not listened to me, they've not walked in my ways, they've not trusted me. So I'm going to raise up the Babylonians, I'm going to send them off into exile. That's the message of Isaiah 1 through 39 for the most part. But then God tells Isaiah again, 700 BC, chapter 40 and following, I want to give you a word of comfort to give to my people so that when they are there 150-ish years from now and when they come to the end of themselves and when they feel as though they're losing all hope, they will already have in front of them my hope, my promise, my word of comfort for them. And so we looked at the first part of Isaiah chapter 40 and just God's pledge to comfort His people. The moment that they began to cry out to Him, that word of comfort was waiting there for them. And we just, you know, we marveled last week at the fact that, that God had done that. Right? He, didn't, he didn't wait for them to cry out to Him in order to then begin to give them a response. Beforehand, He gave them the word that they would need when they cried out to Him. And that theme just carries on throughout the rest of Isaiah chapter 40 and really through the rest of Isaiah. But here, especially in uh, this portion of Isaiah 40 that we read, we see most clearly that these people have grown faint, they've grown weary, they feel weak. So that idea of weariness is just the inability to stand up under the pressures of life. That idea of weakness is that idea of lacking the inner resources in order to do so. So life is hard, it's bearing down on you, and you don't feel like you have anything within you to bear up under it. Does anyone feel that way? And the fact of the matter is that most of us do at least some of the time. Now these people had come to a conclusion and the conclusion was stated in verse 27. Why do you say, O Jacob, and speak, O Israel, my way is hidden from the Lord, and my right is disregarded by my God? There's the conclusion that they had come to. God doesn't see, and God doesn't care. They were weak, they were weary, they were faint, the pressures of life were great, they didn't have anything within them to bear up under it, and they had arrived at a conclusion, God doesn't see and God doesn't care. And maybe you've arrived at that conclusion as well. I feel as though the pressures of life are too great for me. I don't have the resources within me to bear up under it, and I have come to the conclusion that God doesn't see and God doesn't care. In fact, the people of God, in a sense, are like prosecuting attorneys, right? They, they have put God in the dock, to use, you know, the old British idea of a courtroom. They have put God on trial, and they have, they think, made the case that God doesn't see, God doesn't care. It is, in their mind, an irrefutable argument. And Isaiah comes along with a series of counter-arguments that is verse 12 through 26 that we're going to look at in a minute. 
and then invites them and invites any of us that have come to that same faulty conclusion to instead embrace that which is true. To rethink our argument and to rest in that which is true concerning God. And so it really is a marvelous passage. And we're not going to I mean, you know, as with Isaiah 40, which could have been broken in the first part, first 11 verses could have been three sermons. You know, this could probably be five, but we're not going to do that uh, all at once. Um, We're just going to hit the high points. But I really do think we need to see that, that in this passage, written to people who were in their own season of anxiety, they had plenty of reasons to be afraid. They felt like they didn't have anything within them. Listen, you know that old idea that God helps those who help themselves? I mean, this passage totally debunks that idea. God helps those who know they don't have anything within them to bear up under the pressures of life and instead cry out to Him. Right? So this passage right here is calling us to put our trust in and find our strength in and look to the One who is the Creator and the Sustainer of all things. That's the summary of the counter-argument that Isaiah will give us to our argument. And by God's grace, we will lose this case. Let's first go to the Lord in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you for what your word tells us here. That you are indeed a God who sees and a God who does care. And is committed to the protection and the preservation of his people. We ask, O God, that as we look at this passage and learn from it more about who you are, we would receive the gracious response that is contained at the end, which is to wait for you. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so we're going to look at this under two headings. First, what we learn about God, which is kind of looking through the counter-arguments that Isaiah presents to us. And then secondly, how we're invited to respond. So what we learn about God and how we are invited to respond. So first, what do we learn about God? And in verses 12 through 14, we see something of God's wisdom. So take a look at verse 12. Isaiah writes, Who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand and marked off the heavens with a span and closed the dust of the earth in a measure and weighed the mountains in scales and the hills in a balance? All right, this is pointing to God's work of creation. And it is saying that God didn't need any help when he created all things. In fact, it kind of points to his immensity over all things. This picture of who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand. I mean, 97% of the earth or something like that is covered with water. I mean, my wife and I go kayaking out on Canadice Lake. And Canadice Lake, just, you know, fun fact, is like 92 feet deep. And it's three and a half miles long and it's three quarters of a mile wide. That's just Canadice Lake. Think of all the water in the world and what Isaiah is talking about here. God is so immense. It's like he's measured it out in the hollow of his hand. Which not only points to his immensity, but his, his, his really, his ability to perfectly do it, right? This is how much water the world needs. And this idea of the span of his hand in verse 12, and marked off the heavens with a span, that, that, that is this distance. In Isaiah, it was using a word that referred to the distance between one's pinky and one's thumb. So there's God. Okay, Milky Way galaxy, 
This is our God. This is our Creator, God, whose wisdom is profound, whose precision is unparalleled. He didn't need any help to create everything. He did it all himself, and he didn't need any, cons- any consultants either. So verse 13 and 14, who has measured, or a word could be translated directed, the spirit of the Lord, or what man shows him his counsel, whom did he consult, and who made him understand, who taught him the path of justice, which really that phrase means um, the right thing to do at the right time. Who showed him, now this is the right thing to do, and, and this is the right time to do it, God. Who taught him knowledge and showed him the way of understanding. What's Isaiah telling us here? When God created everything, he needed nothing. And in sustaining and directing everything, he needs no advice. Now his way is often inscrutable to us. Isaiah is going to say this at the, uh, verse 28. So take a look, you know, flip over there. Isaiah 40 verse 28, the last phrase Uh, Verse 28, the last line of verse 28 in your Bible says this, His understanding is unsearchable. Now that is both a comfort and a mystery. Because we want to know what God is doing. Right? We're we're like the prosecuting attorney. You need to tell me, God. You need to make your case to me. And Isaiah is saying, no, his ways. Well, Isaiah 55 is, thoughts are higher than our thoughts. His ways are higher than our ways. But he is a God who is so wise. He was able to create all things with precision without any help or any consultation from anyone. What's the implication? If God is wise enough to create and sustain everything, he's wise enough to care for you. Right? This, is, this is Isaiah beginning to chip away At the argument, if God is wise enough to create everything, if he didn't need any help, then he is wise enough to care for you. You're you're part of his creation. Secondly, we learn something of the power of God in verses 15 through 17. Behold, the nations are like a drop from a bucket and are accounted as the dust on the scales. Behold, he takes up the coastlands like fine dust. Lebanon would not suffice for fuel, nor are its beasts enough for burnt offerings. All the nations are as nothing before him. This is pointing to God's power. Imagine you're carrying a bucket of water and a little drop falls out of it. Right? Who cares? It's just a drop. You're not going to turn around and turn the tap on to get one more drop in there to make it worth it. It's a drop. All the nations are like a drop in the bucket to God. In fact, this picture of Lebanon not sufficing for fuel. Lebanon was known for its you know, many cedars, right? The cedars of Lebanon. This is pointing to a sacrificial offering in an effort to get God to do something. All the cedars of Lebanon, you know, on a pyre, and all the beasts of Lebanon put on them as a sacrifice could not move God. Would not be sufficient to force God's hand. In fact, that's the case too at the end of verse, uh, in, in verse 20. He, no, I'm sorry. Verse 17, all the nations are as nothing before him. They are counted by him as less than nothing in emptiness. Emptiness can't push against anything. In other words, there's nothing in God's creation that can overpower him. 
What's the implication? Nothing will prevent God from accomplishing His purpose for you. Nothing will prevent God from finishing His work in you. Right? If God is so powerful that nothing can stand against Him, nothing can thwart His plan in all creation, then nothing will stand against Him when it comes to His purpose for you. He's wise enough to care for you. He's power enough to see through His plans for you. And then verses 16, or I'm sorry, 18 through 20. To whom then will you liken God or what likeness compare with Him? We're seeing something of the incomparability of God. Over against the idols we fashion, something of the majesty of God. So it goes on. To whom then will you liken me or what likeness compare with Him? An idol, a craftsman casts it and a goldsmith overlays it with gold and casts for it silver chains. He who is too impoverished for an offering chooses wood that will not rot. He seeks out a skilled craftsman to set up an idol and here's the kicker. It will not move. It's not going to do anything. Like, like even a poor person is going to find the best possible wood Stuff of the created order. Even a wealthy person is going to choose gold and silver again. Stuff of the created order. In order to form and build something that could never get beyond the best that you could imagine. And can't do anything anyway. Isaiah is telling us here, I think a couple things. One, the majesty of God is beyond your greatest imagining. And two, your hope is found in Him alone. Right? We, we fashion idols, if you will. We look to the things of this earth for our ultimate hope and deliverance. That is idolatry in any age. They were just building little statues. We build a career, or we build a name, or we build a perfect family, or we build status through the kind of things that we possess or the amount of money in our bank account. We're still trying to build something that is of this earth. And it can't do anything. It cannot move to save you. Only God can save you. His majesty is beyond our greatest imagining. God is so much better than having a lot of money in your bank account. God is so much better than having a a great spouse and great kids. God is so much greater than having a great name. And he's the only one that can move to save you anyway. Your hope is in God alone. I think of the lyrics from In Christ Alone, that great song that we sing. In Christ alone my hope is found. He is my light, my strength, my song. This cornerstone, this solid ground, firm through the fiercest drought and storm. What heights of love, what depths of peace. When fears are stilled, when strivings cease. My comforter, my all in all. Here in the love of Christ I stand. Isaiah, he's chipping away at our case. He's tearing down our argument. God doesn't see and God doesn't care. Time out. God's wise enough to care for you. Nothing will get in the way of accomplishing His purpose for you. Your hope is found in Him alone. 
But then he goes on to speak of the watchfulness of God. Look at verses 21 through 26. We're going to break this into, into three parts. First, verse 21 and 22. Do you not know? Do you not hear? Has it not been told you from the beginning? Have you not understood from the foundation of the earth? It is he who sits above the circle of the earth and its inhabitants are like grasshoppers who, who stretches out the heavens like a curtain and spreads them like a tent to dwell in. It's verses 21 and 22. J.I. Packer in his book Knowing God describes these verses this way. The world dwarfs us, but God dwarfs the world. I mean, current events just blow us away. You know, what do you do about X, Y, and Z? Any number of issues in the world. You can't open the paper and think, this is more than I can handle. It's not more than God can handle. The world and all of its problems dwarf us. God dwarfs the world. Verses 23 and 24, God is greater than the world's great men. That's a line from Packer's Knowing God also. God is greater than the world's great men. Verses 23 and 24. Who brings princes to nothing and makes the rulers of the earth as emptiness. Scarcely are they planted, scarcely sown, scarcely has their stem taken root in the earth when he blows on them and they wither and the tempest carries them off like stubble. What a great word for election season. Right? God is greater than the world's great men and women. God is greater than the world's great leaders. They can do nothing to thwart his plan for the world. And then third, Isaiah invites us to consider the stars in verses 25 and 26. To whom then will you compare me that I should be like him, says the Holy One? Lift up your eyes on high and see who created these. Let's look up... Isaiah is calling on these people to look up at the night sky, which in their day and age, they would have been able to see about 5,000 stars. Look, look up and see, God says through Isaiah to these people 150 years down the road when they cry out to him for help. Modern day astronomers tell us that there's about 400 billion stars in our galaxy. The Milky Way galaxy, right? About 400 billion stars. They also estimate that there are 125 billion galaxies in the universe. So if you are doing the math, that means that the total number of stars is estimated at 10 billion trillions. Now I can get my head around 10. I can't get my head around a trillion and I... Sure as heck can't get my head around 10 billion of those trillions. And yet what Isaiah is saying here is God never loses count. He never loses sight of them. He's named each one of them. Implication being, if God never loses sight of one of his 10 billion trillion stars, he's never going to lose sight of you. God's wise enough to care for you. He's powerful enough to accomplish His purpose in and through you. Who He is and what He's up to is greater than you can imagine and your hope is in Him alone anyway. And He'll never lose sight of you. Do you feel your argument beginning to weaken? But then you may say, well, how can I know this is true for me? I mean, this may be just true in general, 
Right? I mean, God says these things, and, but, but what if He's given up on me? What if I'm too far gone? And, and that argument breaks down with the very first part of verse 27. So look there again with me. Verse 27, Why do you say, O Jacob? And why do you speak, O Israel? Jacob and Israel. This is shorthand for the covenant people of God. There's reflected in a very personal way, grounded in the history of God's people, a reminder that this is a covenant-keeping God speaking words of comfort to His covenant-breaking people. This is never will I leave you, never will I forsake you from Hebrews, you know, specifically applied to Jacob, Israel. Remember, Jacob was the great deceiver. Jacob was the one who stole his father's birthright. Jacob was the one who wrestled with God and prevailed, who who wouldn't let go. Jacob was the one who went away with a limp all the rest of his life, but whom God made a great nation. Now, there's not one of us who deserves to be called great, like Isaiah was called great, except in Christ alone. Jesus is the true and greater Jacob. Jesus is the one who wrestled with God in the Garden of Gethsemane and did not prevail, but bore the wrath of God in its full for us in our place. And then rose, not with a limp, but with scars to this very day, that we might be found in Him complete. God is a covenant-keeping God. He bore the curse of the covenant for all those who have been called into a relationship with Him and yet fail Him, just as Jacob had done. And yet God in Isaiah says to His people, Why do you say, O Jacob? Why do you say, O Israel? Which is just like saying, Why do you say, O beloved son and daughter? My way is hidden from God. He's wise enough to care for you. Nothing will stand in the way of His plans for you. He will never lose sight of you. And your hope is in Him alone. Now, how should we respond? How are we invited to respond? And we see that in verses 28 through 31. Have you not known, have you not heard, the Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. He does not grow faint or weary. His understanding is unsearchable. He gives power to the faint, and to him who has no might, he increases strength. Even youths shall faint and be weary, and young men shall fall exhausted. But they who wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not Faint. What are we being called to do here? We're being called to listen and to wait. Listen and wait. Verse 28. Listen to what's true about God. The Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. He does not faint or grow weary. His understanding is unsearchable. Listen. Listen to what's true about God. Know things about God. Know His Word. 
God has revealed himself to us here. I've referenced Chad Packer's book, Knowing God, uh, twice now already. I can't recommend, uh, other than, than the Bible, I can't recommend a, a better book, book to turn to next. After Scripture. Right? I think it was written in 1973. I love the preface. The first line of the 1973 preface to J.I. Packer's Knowing God is, As clowns yearn to play Hamlet, so I have yearned to write a book about the doctrine of God. And this isn't it. <laughs> like he's just saying, I couldn't even do that. And yet here's a book that's, you know... It's endured to this day. It's a classic for a reason. Pick it up and read it. But here's the thing. You know enough about God right now to get started on trusting Him. Because you know Isaiah 40. Like even if you haven't heard anything before now, you've heard something about this God and who He is, about His wisdom, about His power, about His immensity, about His majesty, about His care for His own, to begin to trust Him. So listen. Listen to what God says about Himself in His Word, but also listen to the testimony of other people. You see that in verse 29. He gives power to the faint, to him who has no might, he increases strength. Even you shall faint and be weary, and young men shall fall exhausted. But they who wait for the Lord shall renew their strength. There are people in this church, there should be people in every church, who can say to us when we're weak and weary, let me tell you about the God who gives strength to the weary. Let me tell you about the God who sustains those who are fainting because I have been that person and God has done that work for me. We need to be in relationships like that where we are able to tell that story and hear that story. We have God's Word telling us about God's greatness. We also need in the community of God's people to hear other people tell us about how God has been faithful in their life. So listen. Listen. But secondly, wait. Verse 31, They who wait for the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles, etc. Wait. When we think of waiting, what do we tend to think about? Either passivity or impatience. Right? When is this going to happen? Or I, I might as well watch some Netflix. <laughs> That's not the idea. There's a reason why some translations have those who hope in the Lord shall renew their strength. It's, it's in the same word group. Now here's the thing. The, the word hope, we've talked about this before. The biblical idea of the word hope is not like our idea of the word hope. Our idea of the word hope is certainty with respect to time, uncertainty with respect to outcome. So, I hope your job interview at 3 p.m. tomorrow goes well. Certainty with respect to time. The job interview is 3 p.m. tomorrow. Outcome is uncertain. I hope it goes well. You flip it when it comes to biblical hope. With biblical hope, it's certainty with respect to outcome. It's uncertainty with respect to time. Jesus said, Behold, I am making all things new. Revelation tells us one day God will dwell with man. That is the certain outcome. We just don't know when. Certainty with respect to outcome. Uncertainty with respect to time. Isaiah gives us both here. He gives us both outcome and time. Outcome is 
strength. Time is when you're weak and you cry out to Him. And so wait. We might qualify it with wait, not impatiently or passively, but expectantly. How are we invited to revise our case? Hey, how about we just chuck our case? It was a bad one anyway. And instead, embrace these truths about God. Listen and wait. Now, we might expect the last verse and the last three lines to end differently than they do. And here's what I mean. The way I read it, and the way I think we tend to think of it, is like it builds to this amazing crescendo. But it actually doesn't in the last three lines, does it? It's kind of a day crescendo. We would expect it to read, you know, walk, even run, even soar with wings like eagles. And then chapter 41 begins. But instead we have the reverse, soar, even run, yes, even walk. Why is that? I love the way Dick Lucas put it. Dick Lucas says this, Why the anticlimactic ending? Yes, there will be times when we will be able to aspire to the heights, to soar like the eagle, to do great things. Yes, there will be times when we have to run in order to do God's work. And He will sustain us in that. But the greatest evidence of the power of God is the capacity of His people in an evil world to live the normal Christian life. The mark that the Holy One is comforting His people is that His people, listen, do not fall down and fail to get up again. We keep walking, step by step. So maybe it is a crescendo after all. Because to just keep walking, step by step, when we fall, to cry out to the Lord and get up and walk again, well, that's just, the, that's just what Christians do. Is what God has enabled His people to do all throughout history, despite all the evils that we face in this world, all the things that well up within All the cases that we would make against God concerning what we would perceive to be His absence or disinterest are broken down in the light of His glorious grace. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank You for this promise. We thank You that You come to the aid of those who cry out to You. Lord, we pray that You would give us the uh, capacity to walk and the grace to get back up when we fall knowing that it is always and forever you who sustains us you who guides us you who comforts us you who directs us help us remember oh God that you are good and that you are in control and that you can be trusted and we ask this in Jesus name Amen